Welcome back, my friends. Today, we have a returning guest, Ashley Iverson on The Evolved Man. You can get to know more about Ashley by listening to episode 73, where we talk more about her background and what yoga therapy is. You can also find Ashley in our roundtable discussion on brain health and traumatic brain injuries, where we had Ashley, Dr. Alina Fong, and Jen Salerno join us for an in-depth conversation about injuries and brain health. Ashley continues to impress in this episode with uh, just the great work that she's doing. It's truly an honor knowing people like Ashley because she does some amazing work and she does work uh, primarily with patients and specifically active duty military men. In this episode, we discuss the need for more awareness and conversation about mental health challenges, uh, help remove the stigma, promote men getting the help that they need, how men can open up emotionally, and how working through the body first becomes a pathway for men to develop more emotional awareness and emotional intelligence. We also discuss some of the most important things that Ashley has learned in her career, and we give a sneak peek into some of the resources that she has created that are out and are coming to help people, uh, both active military and in the regular lay population as well, to work through some of the challenges that come with being a man that has struggled with trauma, injury, or just simply needs to find a better path to opening up emotionally. So with that, I'm excited to reintroduce you to Ashley Iverson. And now, on to the show. Welcome to The Evolved Man, where we are at war with the mediocrity of modern man. The Evolved Man is for men like you, who are willing to be strong, open, and aggressive learners. Men who are not afraid to disrupt and change. It's time we ditch the current conventional idea that we devolve with age, that the dad bod is our destiny, and that the glory days are behind us. Your best isn't behind you, and I'm here to provide you with practical tools, a few tips and tricks, and everyday wisdom to help you evolve into your highest form. Strong, lean, smart, educated, and emotionally intelligent. Now, let's go to war. Well, Ashley, welcome back. Well, thank you so much. So great to have you. Um, you know, I I'm not an expert in this. Okay, so don't take my word for it. But I've heard that there is such a thing as waterproof mascara. Is that right? <laughs> there is. Have you considered buying some? Um, I bought it once and I couldn't get it off. So <laughs> I mean not for me. All jokes aside, I, I wondered if maybe buying that or maybe even just buying stock in a waterproof mascara company might be a good thing for you because when you get these cards and these letters from the people that you're working with, that's a, it's a pretty emotional response, right? Oh, gosh. I mean, even if I let myself think about it, I'll just start crying almost immediately. As soon as I said that, I could see your body shift. Yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about today. You, um, you were working with some men today. Um, what was great about it? 
what shifted in them today? Yeah. So, um, working with inpatient active duty military men and teaching them what we call yoga, even though I have my own interpretation and definition of it today, I taught headstands to a bunch of men. So typically I teach a experiential styled class that's organized systematically through physical movement, music, light therapy, and then concept, or some people might call it theme. And so it's kind of this um, simultaneous experience of all of that at the same time that is able to open up some deeply repressed emotions. <laughs> and um, But today was a workshop. Uh, they chose it. So we did headstands, learning how to be upside down or having your world shifted upside down and trying to find stability in that experience, but often embracing failure of trying to find stability in that experience. Now, what a cool concept. Yeah, I love how when I when you uh, came here, I said, how was the day? And you said, oh, it was great. I taught 40 men how to stand on their heads. Yeah. It's not a common answer I get. Yeah, I get to have a very uncommon life. How um, it, You bring up a great point. Failure is a big part of the learning process. And seeing things from a different perspective is one of the best ways that we can initiate growth. Talk a little bit more about this process of going through failure and getting upside down to see a world in a different perspective. Yeah. So this particular workshop that I do of standing on your head in the curriculum of this whole program that they're in, they're inpatient for uh, PTSD, substance abuse, sexual victimization, amongst other diagnoses for a minimum of 30 days. So in this workshop that I do as a part of that program, it's all about shifting perspective perception or perspective. And so as I put them in a very vulnerable, uncomfortable position of let's literally flip you upside down and yeah. put you fully reliant on surviving and holding yourself there. Um, it's kind of funny to walk into a room of, you know, anywhere from 12 to 20 guys at one time and their faces are full of terror. And these are men who go to war. Right. Like, duty military <laughs> men. Duty right. military yeah. men. And they are almost always all of them afraid to stand on their head. I would say in that room of 15 to 20, I maybe have one or two that are excited about it. Wow. <laughs> and all the rest are just sheer terror or coming up with immediate excuses as to why they can't even try it. It's not funny what we get scared of. Yeah. You know, I know before we started the recording, we talked about how many of these men, they have been trained to uh, either be blind to the emotion or pull the emotion out of a situation so that they can perform in very dramatic and traumatic situations. And so coming into a situation where now I'm standing on my head becomes a, uh, a an area where they're feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. What's the first step that you're guiding them through? The first step for me is to instill some sort of trust that I with them that I know how to guide them there, right? That I'm like, okay, here's the rules. Rule number one, don't put weight on your head. <laughs> and usually when I say that, and I'm like, your cervical spine is not designed to hold your body weight. So we're yeah. not actually putting weight on our head. And I kind of teach the anatomy and then the processes of how to get there and the three different ways of how to try it out. And the first way that I teach them is just hope for the best. I'm like, you're just going to kick into it and we're going to see what happens. And um, when I give them permission for that to be the first step in trying it, just hoping for the best, it's like sometimes in life, that is your first step. It's just to throw yourself into something unknowingly with the information you have and 
see what happens. And then I tell them, now you have experience. After that first step of hoping for the best, you have experience and we can add on to that. Then you can use the experience of what it felt like to start to navigate it a little bit better. And so the second try, we use a little bit more deliberate, intentional control. And then eventually we work our way into completely just hiking or lifting into Mm. the inversion. I like how you said the parameters at the beginning. I actually had a a really interesting conversation with one of my executive clients this last week. Um, And I'd be curious to see what your perspective is on this. People who are high performers, people who throw themselves into the fray, so to speak, tend to put their own framework around the level of performance that they need to achieve. And if you don't set parameters around them to say, hey, we're just trying this, the first time you're probably going to fail, they will put their own parameters of perfection and jump in expecting this perfect headstand. Or with my client the other day, I was talking to him and I said, this is really what we're looking for. And he was expecting this great perfection. I said, no, this is a process. I'm expecting you to go through this and fail the first time so that we can figure out where your failures are and then we can address them from there. Do you experience the same thing with these clients? I experience it with them, but I also experience it with myself. Like I'm one of the biggest victims there are to um, a perception of needing to do something right every time and especially the first time, you know, so it's been something I work with in personally in so many different ways. And oftentimes when I'm teaching, I'm always telling myself like, Ashley, if you could just take your own advice, <laughs> you know, right. but um, yeah, I do see if it. If the teacher I'm... was as good of a student as she was a teacher, then we yeah. would be better. Exactly. <laughs> but I, res- I resonate with that. Yeah. But with them, it's um, just giving permission, like, yeah, let yourself be bad at this. I think even in the whole environment of these men, oftentimes coming into my class of yoga in an inpatient psychiatric hospital, they're resistant to it to begin with because yoga is labeled as something feminine. And then I have to remind them that in the lineage of this practice, men did yoga before women. And it's Uh, You know, it's not even about a gender assignment or strength, masculinity, femininity. It's this entire process of the whole experience. And yeah, they often have resistance from the get-go to to every aspect of what yoga is assumed to be. Have you ever read Mo Gadot's book, uh, Solve for Happy? Mm -mm. So it's a phenomenal book. One of my mentors had recommended it to me. And uh, I kind of looked at him quizzically and I said, are you, do you, giving me this book so that you think I'm not happy? He goes, no, no, no. It just, he says, I know you want to continue to get more and more success. And I want you to have this framework before you go into it. So Mogadot was one of the original people in Google and was a phenomenal engineer who went through a tragedy where he lost his son. And through this book, he talks about that the equation for happiness is essentially that our expectations tend to uh, be lower than what reality is. But if expectations are higher, uh, then we tend to be less happy. And it makes me think about how far too often we set these parameters on ourselves. We put these things out there with, this is the box that I need to fit in. And we give up a lot of happiness because we're trying for perfection, first and foremost. Um, Okay, so I want to shift gears just a bit. Yeah. Um, 
I've gotten into the habit with having people in studio of putting a book on the table next to them. And uh, it's a book generally that I think that the guest, when they come into the studio, it's something that reminds me of something about that guest. So my question, my, my first question is, have you ever read that book? I have not, but I will say it already got my attention the second I sat down, I wanted to pick it up. Okay. So what was it about the book that caught your attention? First, that it's a illustrated book, that it's um, what I guess you would classify as like a child's book right, as pictures. Right. And yeah. um, the author is an author that I'm familiar with. And what, what did you read by Shel Silverstein? <laughs> Do you recall? I'm bad at remembering the names of the books, but I can picture the. Do you covers. remember where the sidewalk ends? Yes. Yeah, that was it. the one that I fell in love with. Yeah. And partially because when you go to the back of the book and you look at who this Shel Silverstein guy was, he mm -hmm. like had this cool bald head and mm -hmm. beard and everything. It was like as a kid, I would thought that was like the most magical thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, and so and and I mean, I'm just someone who has a really personal, intimate relationship with books in general. So as soon as I sat down, I was just like, oh, I have to, I have to dive into this. I have to pick this up. Love that. Well, that's your book um, that I want you to take, but let me tell you why I picked that one. One of the reasons why I picked it is because of what you just said, that it's a children's book, but it is one of the most profound books I've ever read. And I think that oftentimes when we live in a very childlike state, we find the most profound teachings. And that's one thing I've observed with you and how you uh, show up to the way that you work with your patients and work with people. Uh, there is this wonder and this childlike nature, but also the, the name of the, the title of it, The Giving Tree. I think there's a lot to that book that reminds me of how you show up to each one of these uh, classes that you do and how you've crafted your program. So uh, we're going to have to do round, what is this, round two? I guess technically this is round three, right? Because you came on with uh, Jen and Dr. Fong. So we're going to have to do round four uh, where you come back and talk about this book after you've read it. Does that sound good? Yes, I love that. Thank you so much. And and I love that perspective of that showing up with this childlike you know, energetic state, because today in the headstand class, um, I always teach them the headstand first. And then we circle back to the yin versions, which are the more mm. gentle inversions, like yeah. legs up the wall or waterfall pose. And, um, as I was explaining to these men, you know, the counterintuitive, like necessary reason for doing both different styles at different times of the day or different times in your practice, they all immediately went into legs up the wall. And one of the guys was like, I do this just naturally because it makes me feel like a kid. And I was like, well, you should do more things naturally that right. you physically desire that make you feel like a kid. We need to, right? Yeah. There was a certain point in life where we all got to the point where we just, we grew up and we stopped doing things that were playful. Intuitive and organic and right. natural. Yeah. Right. So that's one of the things Thank I love you. about that book. But I also love, it's a, it's a, uh, it is a tearjerker. Uh, at least it it chokes me up when I get to the end of it, and you'll understand why when you get to the end, because of the way that the tree continues to give and how the tree gives of itself in multiple ways all the way through the end of its life. So Ugh. I won't spoil it for you. I'm excited cry. to uh, to have you read it uh, because I do think that there is an allegory here with the way that you show up to your coaching with your your clients there. 
Um, so I know you're an avid reader as well. Uh, what are some of the best books that you've read this last year? My gosh, I have to really think about that because I usually read about five books at one time. <laughs> I'm really, really bad at sitting down and just reading one book start I'm, to finish. I'm the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've got several going at any one point in time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a researcher at heart. And so, you know, even three pages into any book, I will um, go grab another book that has a, a area in it that I recall that is similar. And then I have two books and I'm contrasting, comparing the information from both. And then that leads to a third book. And pretty soon yeah. I'm sitting on the floor with six books and highlighters and sticky notes, and I'm crafting my own, you know, description of the information I'm receiving. So that's more of how I read. But uh, I did read Believe It by Jamie oh. Kern Lima. And um, it, it was so wildly and unexpectedly inspiring that it was one of the only books that I did actually just finish, start to start to finish. I've never heard of that one. Yeah. She's, um, very motivational and inspirational and, and just describes her journey of building her brand and her company of it cosmetics. Oh. And, um, as someone who's starting out, you know, launching a a brand and a vision, I found so much inspiration and also mentorship and information and almost this calming sense within her words and the way that she says things and describes things. And I connected with so much of how she describes everything. So. It, it's a pretty cool thing when you find somebody who almost becomes like this avatar that you want to map several of your pieces of your business or your brand after, right? Yeah. So I can definitely resonate with that. If you were forced to uh, say, okay, here's my top five or my top 10 favorite books of all time, what would they be? My top five? Um, there's one called The Deeper Meaning of Yoga. Uh, that one to me really actually describes yoga and explains the lineage, the history, the deeper meaning, just as it, it's just as it describes in the title. I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but it's always on the top of my shelf <laughs> as I refer back to it. And I often loan it to patients. Um, gosh, what else? The courage to be disliked. <laughs> that one was, um, is just something you can constantly recall or you can kind of go back and just flip to any random page and receive something really powerful out of it. Mm. Um, see what else is always on the top of my list? Um, Illusions by Richard Bach. Okay. Yeah. With that one, um, one of my favorite quotes ever, actually a quote that I really try to live my entire life by is a Richard Bach quote. Um, I'll try to recall it as best as I can, but it's, uh, no matter how qualified or deserving one is, you will not have a better life until you can imagine it and allow yourself to have it. Oh, I like that. And when I really dove into that quote, which I reflect back on over and over and over, it was like those four defining traits that no matter how qualified or deserving, nothing is going to change until you can imagine it and allow it. Right. So it's like those four words in the equation and how that really equals this outcome of change. It's a pretty powerful equation when you think about it. Um, have you ever read Maxwell Maltz, uh, cycle cybernetics? Not. So it's pretty, uh, I want to say it came out in like the 1980s. So I'm not really sure how well it's aged in, uh, 
standard psychology. I've actually got one of my clients who is a uh, psychotherapist that I've I've asked him to read it and then give me his feedback. Um, but one of the, the the premise of the book is essentially that if you can visualize what it is that you want, you will eventually be able to create that. And there's a lot in the book that really resonated because I have had multiple times in life where I will go back to a journal, a uh, a paper that I've scratched a bunch of goals on, and I completely forgot about them. And then I realized, oh, I've accomplished all of these things. And while I forgot that I wrote those things down, they never left my mind. The visualization was so clear that I eventually ended up, you know, creating, getting whatever it was that I had written down. And so I believe that that visualization piece is so important for us because if we can clearly see it, then we can clearly create it. And there's so much richness, so much texture, so much nuance to the ability to be able to see further and to be able to see something that we want in life. Um, what other books? I think you picked, I'm like, I'm, I think you picked three. I did, I did me, pick me three. If now more. you've inspired me to think of something else. So I have to touch on this now okay. that you came to my mind on that. So even just this morning, my journal topic this morning for myself was to write down all of the things that I've done in my life that I at one point never imagined was possible. Oh, that's a great. Right. And it was, it was really special for me because I'm someone that doesn't actually give myself credit almost ever <laughs> for accomplishing something. And um, even something as simple as like how much I've traveled, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I reflect back to the younger me, I would have never expected to see all these areas of the world that I've gone to, some really remote secret places in the world that I traveled to and spent great time there, you know? And so it was just like, even some of the more simple things that weren't necessarily making the largest difference in someone else's life or impact in the world. They were like personal experiences. It was, it was profound to give myself credit for things like that. I think it's a great exercise. Um, one of the things that I, I love uh, having my clients do, and I do this from time to time as well, is partially what you just said. Uh, I've stolen a, a concept that I call the Janus principle. And Janus was the god of gates and doors. And when you think about what, what did Janus look like? Well, he was a two-faced god. One face, one head was looking in one direction, one was looking in another direction. Always looking backwards to determine from the past what were the mistakes that were made so that they're not repeated in the future, and then always looking into the future to say, how do we guard or how do we create what it is that we want to create? And so I will, from time to time, have my clients do a Janus journaling where I have them look back and say, okay, what have you accomplished that you didn't think you were going to accomplish? But also, where were some of the mistakes that you don't want to repeat in the future? And then if you were to not repeat those mistakes in the future, what would it look like? And I have them get very, very clear on that. And it creates this beautiful perspective that in a way, time is not really linear, right? We can time travel back to the past and see what was and experience all these beautiful things again. And we can also feel, oh, wow, I really screwed up in that area. I don't want to do that again. So how do I transform uh, myself into the future, into something different? So what a great journaling prompt. So how did you ask that to yourself? What, what, was the, what was the exact prompt? Did you just say, what are the things that I've accomplished that I didn't think I could do? 
no, actually it was in a new book that I started (laughs) and I can't remember the exact name of the title. It's like how to heal or something. I mean, I'm just in the second chapter and I never remember titles and authors. I just dive into all these books and, um, it gave 48, I believe 48 rules for life. And it was one of the numbers. It had said something like, take time to give yourself credit for the things that you have done. And so of course I like already had a journal out and I just wrote that at the top. And I was like, that's what we're journaling journaling about today. So that was where that came from. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So you got one more book. What's one Um, book that I love 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, too. Oh, I haven't yeah. read that one yet. So uh, you're good. you're not the first person to recommend that yeah. to me, so, so I need good. to pick that one up. But I'm also a junkie for um, nutrition books. So okay. like Genius Foods and How Not to Die. And there's even a book I have called 150 of the Healthiest Foods on Earth. Oh, and it really yeah. dives into kind of the chemistry of food and yeah. how it's so medicinal to the body. So I love to read things like that, too. I need to get your list on that because I've got... Uh, two books that I'm diving into on nutrition science right now that I'm just fascinated by. And uh, the recipe that I made last night came from one of those books. And it just, it, it was unbelievable. The flavor was so beautiful. Uh, I, I'm i a big believer that great food should taste great. And mm-hmm. it should give you the nutrients that make the cells of your body so that you have a beautiful body, beautiful life. And it's not the stuff that you're just sitting around eating bland, boring food so that you can lose the weight. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to have to stay. I mean, food is art, in my opinion. I, food is yeah, art. And I, I love food. You know, I'm like, how can I make a Michelin styled recipe that's also just as healthy as it needs to be, you know, delicious? And yeah, right. I'm the artist of that. I, well, and you are. We got to take a, uh, this is my squirrel brain jumping all over the place. But I recall at one point you used to post um, pictures of latte art. That oh, you yeah. Do. <laughs> yeah. And I would look at that and I'm like, how do you do that? Now, I've tried yeah. a few times. And albeit I haven't tried a lot. Yeah. But I've tried a few times. I still can't get it. It's so com- it's so complicated, honestly. There's a way that you can practice it with dish soap, actually. So you're just using like oh. water and frothed dish soap so you can practice the method, but I'll have to it's learn. very difficult. Yeah, I'll have to learn the dish soap method. YouTube, YouTube for that. Okay. We're gonna YouTube the dish soap message uh, or method. Um James Redfield wrote in the Silstein Prophecy that uh dreams come to us. Uh or excuse me, dreams come to tell us something about our lives that we are missing. I, I would say that probably 99.9% of my dreams are about business, podcast, and how I can make things bigger, better, and how I can reach more people and help them. What are your current dreams and aspirations? Oh my gosh, I am obsessed that you just asked me this because this morning when I was driving to the hospital, I... I was contemplating like, what are my three themes for 2024? And I try to pick three solid words that I sort of hold myself accountable to for the year. And I was struggling to find the third. I had two, and I'm not going to share them because they're personal, but I'll tell you the third one. It was dream. (laughs) And I, it took me until whatever today is January 18th to define the third term of dream and because it's a word that just keeps coming up mm. in my life yeah everyone's talking about what is your what is the dream or do you let yourself dream and what are your dreams telling you dreams are everywhere so i love this question um i have two dreams that i have repeatedly and i've had them actually since i was a kid the first one 
is that I'm jumping over a fence. Oh, interesting. I dream this all the time. And I have since I was a kid where I'm just running and constantly going over fence after fence after fence. Mm. And it's exhausting. And I actually asked um, a psychic once. I told her about it. And and I was like, why do I keep having this dream? And she was like, it's to remind you of your perseverance, like how you will not give up. Yeah. No matter what obstacles put in front of you, you will climb up and over it. And then you, when you need to remember that about yourself, you'll dream it. And it will come into your mind. For our listeners who have not listened to, I had to look back on what episode it was. Episode 73, when we uh, first had Ashley on, she details her her jumping over the fence with getting her program into the hospital. And it's a, we, we won't go into detail. Go listen to that episode. Um, what other dreams? Um, another dream that I have, and I actually have this one sometimes, in like a subconscious way while I'm even awake. But another dream that I've had for probably the past 10 to 12 years, but more so over the past eight, is that I'm in a chair in an interview and there's recording going on. It's kind of like a production mm-hmm. and I'm talking about my work and um, I'm describing some of these experiences I've had with the patients that I've worked with. And as I'm doing this, um, there's the patients are actually coming out onto the stage behind me <laughs> and I don't know because it's behind me. Okay. And so I'm discussing some of these like profound memories that I have with these men and women that I've worked with. And then I'm asked to like stand up and turn around and I see just hundreds of people that I've worked with and I just like break down on stage with emotion. So that's one that I have all the time. Um, and it's one of my favorite dreams. I hate when I wake up from it. Yeah. What a powerful experience. I like you, I have multiple recurring dreams and most of them have to do with, uh, some version of, you know, things that are tied to my, to my life and my business. I don't really separate the two, right? Because my life and my passion and helping other people, whether it's podcasting or coaching or whatever I'm doing, um, it's, it's all the same. And so I dream about those things constantly. I would say the only thing that changes is just the players that are in there. And sometimes I'll have different players that will show up and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. That's, this is why, because we're creating that thing. I think they're pretty powerful, but I think a lot of people don't listen to or don't pay attention to them. Is this something that people should look out for? and look for meaning behind them meaning behind dreams yeah i i've asked myself this question a lot and i think dreams are something that people in general talk about a lot or that we share with each other um i'm always the researcher again (laughs) so i always go to like what does the science say or what's happening when we're dreaming um i think that dreams my personal belief So this is not a scientific, um, evidential fact, but my personal belief is that sometimes in our dreams, it's like we're in a parallel world, right? So like you're living your life somewhere else and that there can be a message that you receive if you are able to drag that into your consciousness in this world or this realm or this life. And so I always try to obviously take it with a grain of salt, but to tap into like, how did it make me feel? feel when I was living that experience in that state. And 
what do I, what can I receive from this? What is there like a gift of a message that I'm able to retain in the consciousness of this realm? Yeah. Beautiful way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, you like Cahill uh, um, Gibran, right? Oh my gosh. Yes. So I thought this statement on silence was, was particularly profound. Um, and we're going to go against what he says, because we're actually going to talk about it. Um, even though the quote tells you to not. Uh, great um, thought that transcends nature does not pass from one being to another by way of human speech. Truth comes silence, or excuse me, truth chooses silence to convey her meaning to loving souls. How have you utilized silence to tap into um, your creative power? Oh my gosh. I'm so I'm reading this book every day. The essentials <laughs> is what it's called. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, silence is something that I'm trying to build a relationship with. I am someone who talks all the time. <laughs> I was I posted something on Instagram that was like, the kids who always got in trouble for talking too much, what are you doing now? <laughs> I'm still <laughs> the kid that talks too much. Nice. And um, I've tried to learn how to embrace silence. Um, there's another quote I've read that said, um, It said, speak only when your words improve upon the silence. And so to be more deliberate and intentional in the exchange of language in general, um, words are magic or they're spells, right? And so um, I am personally trying to embrace sitting in silence and being in silence with others, being a better listener, because I'm always someone that wants to jump in and cut someone off and be like, I have something to say that's exciting. (laughs) So I'm trying to learn how to digest what someone else is offering me and be more of a receiver on that end, because I think that's kind of personally the, the space in my life that I'm entering is a needing to receive. Yeah, beautiful. Um, you work with a lot of men, active duty military, uh, specifically, many have dealt with traumatic events, right? Uh, they've had injuries, they're dealing with PTSD, among other challenges. Um, you mentioned that when we talk that much of what you're doing is based on helping these men feel instead of think, right? Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, so I working primarily with men in general, men specific classes, and then them being active duty military. Um, Men in general, I don't think embrace or are taught to embrace the experience of feeling rather than thinking. I mean, the masculine or the yang or this other spectrum of the polarity of think and feel, they're all pushed into a place of be a thinker, be a problem solver, be a doer, be strong. Um, Whereas being in a place of feeling is considered feminine or passive or to somehow deny strength. And so, yeah, I bring them into a position where it's all about feeling. Everything is about feeling. In teaching yoga or body movement or the experience of connecting to what you feel, and of course it starts physical in that environment, and I always tell them it starts physical because that's the easiest. People often complain about what they feel in their body, right. whether it's their, my knee is injured or my hip or my hamstring. And I'm just like, okay, just put that on pause and just try to see what's perhaps deeper than that. And so a lot of yoga is sitting in stillness and being with the experience of what you feel, not in a place of injury or potential harm, but in a place of discomfort, most certainly. And so it's pulling them out of their head and into their body. That's a quote that a lot of yoga teachers will use. Um, 
but even just to break down the emotional concrete. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I call with them. I'm like, you you can think that being emotional concrete gives you a structure of support, but if anything, it's more of just a block to what's trying to get in. Talk more about that. That's not a phrase that I've heard, but I really like it. Yeah. Emotional concrete. Emotional concrete. Yeah. I mean, think about concrete. How hard is it? You have to chip and chip and chip and chip to make a dent if you can. Right. And um, a lot of the men that I work with, I mean, they go through boot camp and they're in they're in active duty military for decades some of them are you know older and they've been in the military for a really long time so they are so programmed not to feel or to disassociate or disconnect from what they feel even in injury like a lot of them will come right. in and they do actually have physical injuries from their careers and then they just push through it and they're injuring themselves more and in yoga there's a property called ahimsa which is no harm right okay. and so even teaching some of these smaller teachings to them of like you don't need to do 50 push-ups like what is that actually doing for you maybe you just need to sit in a forward fold and not react to every urge that tells you you can't do it and prove yourself wrong it doesn't mean you have to put your forehead on your thighs that's not a forward fold a forward fold can be barely leaning into it maybe an inch or two and if you're in discomfort let's just sit in that discomfort until you can start to build more of a relationship with what's the deeper underlying experience how often do we limit ourselves because we are Placing a word or a phrase on the feeling that is essentially just a catch-all word, right? Oh, I feel pain. Mm-hmm. Do you? Yeah. How yeah. often are we doing that? Um, I mean, I can't describe how often someone might do something, but I can see it a lot in the classes that I teach that pain is one of the biggest safety or security blankets that people carry around. Mm. You know, pain is real um, in the healthcare system. It's considered one of the senses, right? We have to take it seriously and pain is real. But I think understanding and comprehending pain, because I often watch people not give enough credit to what their body is capable of. And so they come in and they rely on a perception of a limitation such as a joint, like, oh, I hurt my knee or my hip or my back when I was 25 and now I'm 45. And so I've sold myself this story that I'm incapable of such and such for so long that I've given no opportunity of chance to try and do certain things. And so I always start with them at a place of like, okay, well then just try this. You know, and it's yeah. like slowly tricking them into using what they've avoided using for a really long time until they break that stigma that they created. So there is a stigma that's created by the words, the phrases, but oftentimes the sensation needs to go deeper than what they are classifying it as, because it's not just pain. It might be tightness. It might be a limitation. It might just be something in their joints or in their body that is, uh, presenting itself as pain because that's the only way they know how to communicate it out, right? Yeah, yeah. And I actually will describe this sometimes when I'm teaching, even in a physical shape as simple as a seated forward fold. Um, I'll have someone hold that posture for an extended period of time and tell them not to react to anything that comes up, right? Don't move a finger, don't move an eyelid, don't even move your tongue inside your mouth. Perfect stillness. And 
to watch how frustrated they get with me to keep them there for three to five minutes with no reaction and no response, which is in its lineage, the tradition of yoga. And so I watched these men start to build these stories of like, this is not good for my back. I'm like, then engage your core. Like your back is capable of more than you give it credit. Um, And your whole body is capable of more than you give it credit. And so sometimes I just like trick them into some sort of pose or shape. And then it's like, well, now your knee is bending. (laughs) I actually had a physician once uh, because I've worked with substance abuse rehabilitation too. And I work with the treatment team. And so I get to know a lot of the history uh, of the patient's is when I have a patient that's resistant, I'll go find the doctor and I'm like, hey, does this patient actually have chronic pain or what are their physical diagnoses? And oftentimes what the patient comes and tells me doesn't align with what the patient is telling the doctor. And so they're using it as an excuse to get out of having to use their body. And um, the doctor once told me an interesting statement. They said, if the patient was trying to get heroin could they get on their hands and knees to get it? Or could they reach their arms up above their head to get the drug that they've been addicted to? Mm. And so if suddenly the injury or the pain vanishes when the desire for what they're trying to get is greater, then it's about shifting that perspective into the yoga room as well. Like if your desire is to get better or to find a way to navigate the mechanism of addiction, then you can reach your arms up above your head in yoga class, you know? So. Interesting. <laughs> but it, it comes back to the concepts of faith, belief, and, and really storytelling. The stories that we tell ourselves are extremely powerful and that will either drive us forward or it will limit us to, uh, to not move. How do you help people break their current stories that they're telling themselves? I think a lot of times I just trick them (laughs) into it. And it starts with trying to get some sort of trust in me. And when I'm establishing trust with me, it's setting a baseline that I actually don't have expectations for them. Mm. You know, they, they enter the room and my first expectation is just lie down, just lie down. And if that's all you do and that's all you can do, then let's start there. Um, or even just getting them to be in the room. Sometimes they'll come into the yoga room and just sit on the floor in the back corner. And of course, at that point, I try to ask them to at least sit or lie down on a yoga mat, but there are times in the rare instance that they even resist that it's rare, but it happens. And so I just kind of meet them where they are and I'm like, okay, just sit to the side and observe. And maybe tomorrow you'll feel more safe in this space. And so if I can just get them to lie down, then I can start to, you know, guide them into this mental, emotional concept of connecting to themselves. And then we just take baby steps. And then all of a sudden they're doing headstands like they were today. Like most of the men that did headstands today, a lot of them came in and on their first day, they just laid on the yoga mat. They completely refused any of it. And so every day they build a little bit more trust with me. And then that eventually translates into that they're actually trusting themselves. So there's, there's steps along the way. There's a, there's a process that uh, you go through. There's a system to this. And um, I know that as before we re- started the recording, we were talking a little bit about the different levels that you teach people. Uh, as part of your system and how you'll ask a question and say, okay, where are you at? And you give them uh, 
five different levels. Is that right? Yeah. So I had to set up a way of creating quick and effective communication because I have a group of, like I've said, 15 to 20 people coming in the room at one time that I either, some of them I've never even met before, and I don't know what they've been doing all day. When someone goes to use their body in life by their choice, which would be like going to the gym or going to some sort of fitness class, they're looking at some kind of description and they're picking to commit to something that they feel safe with, right? If I'm going to a yoga class at a studio, I'm like, I'll do power yoga because I feel comfortable doing that with my body. But when I have 15 to 20 people coming into a room at a designated time frame in the day, and they're all at different levels of fitness and health, and they're also not choosing to do yoga at this time. So I had to come up with a system of tell me how much you can give me, and then we'll find kind of the medium range and go from there. Mm. So one through five is the way of communicating that a one says I'm on empty and a five says I'm full. And then obviously two, three, and four are in the middle of that. So that was the system. And this is their energy, their willingness to participate. Uh, How do you, what's in that bucket? It's kind of all of it. It's like how much energy you have, how much, um, how much physical engagement are you willing to put in? It's kind of just like a self-assessment of how much can I show up right now? And when they're new to the room and they're trying to understand the levels one through five, I explain it as a level one is lying down the whole time. It doesn't mean we do nothing, but you're lying on your back and we're doing, you know, six to eight different physical movements in that 45 to 60 minute time frame. Whereas a level two, we're going from lying down to seated to hands and knees, but we never stand. A level three, we're finally going to come up to standing for some section of the session. And then a level four is giving me permission to get their heart rate up. And then a level five is everything. So we're doing challenging things like standing series, plank, sit-ups, push-ups, everything. So that was kind Headstands, of- Headstands, all the- Headstands, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So um, I love this this concept of before going into some sort of movement, having a self-assessment. This is something that I find uh, very, very difficult with the people that I work with because I'm typically dealing with a- an executive, a CEO, somebody who is just driven. And so they think that it's either all or it's nothing. And so it's either zero or it's a five, right? If we're using your scale, they're not even showing up in the room. They're just zero. They're, they're zoned out. Um, how has giving this level system to your clients changed their perspective of their ability to move? Yeah, it lets them have some element of control. Which is, I think, a positive thing in a setting where they have almost no control. Um, So they often will undersell themselves. So usually when they come in the room and I'm able to look at their schedule for the day. So I know how much of their day they spent sitting, um, if they were able to have any form of physical movement during the day, what sort of therapeutic processing they've gone through for that day. Um, so I kind of know those things. And then obviously I'm an advocate for movement. So I'm always going to urge them to move a little bit more than they would choose to, but they'll always undersell themselves. They'll come into the room and say, we want a one, we want a two. And I'm like, we're doing a four. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We're doing a four, you know, I'll always push them forward a little bit more. And, um, Yeah. But then you have the guys that will come in and want a five and have a lot of ego and it's their first time there. And then they do a five. And from that point forward, they're like terrified about it. And they're all communicating with each other. Like, don't pick a five. They're scared of it at that point. There you go. I love that breakdown. Uh, I want to come back to emotion and just awareness. You know, I, I, the way I look at it is emotion, sensation, and feeling. Well, all three of those things are felt different in the body. 
um, that men have a difficult difficult time. They have a difficult time recognizing uh, and identifying an emotion. Uh, They have a tough time identifying what they're sensing and feeling. And when we think about creating these connections between sensation, emotion, feeling, is there a step-by-step process that you take men through? Yeah. So my system is that we first start with the body, physical body. And so anytime I put someone into a physical shape or ask or guide them into a physical shape, the first thing is to assess what does your body feel like, your muscles, your tissues, your joints, the articulation of your joints together, you know, tap into what you can feel in your body because that's the easiest, that's baseline. And then as you sit in that, it has no option but to travel to your mind, your attention, your cognitive awareness is going to start to get activated. And then the longer you sit in that, it's going to tap into emotion. You're going to start to have an urge for some sort of response, whether it's to dive into it a little bit more. Maybe you experience some sort of bliss or ecstasy or happiness in it, or you're going to be bothered and frustrated and triggered, and you're going to get the urge to give up or wiggle or refuse or move or literally run out of the room. You know, so it's going to take you in one of these directions. And so then once we get into emotion, we can start to process either how we show up when we feel these things or even just process understanding what they feel like. Um, Because there's so many words that we toss around, even words like trust, vulnerability, security, stability, all of these words that are used, but we don't know what they mean. We're not, we're not connecting the language with the experience. Mm -hmm. And how it feels in each person's body too, mm-hmm. right? I think that emotion, we tend to forget that emotion, uh, you know, love, uh, passion, anger, frustration, these all exhibit the, uh, in different ways, in, in different people, right? You might feel anger and you feel it in your in your heart, whereas I might feel it in my head. And it's just, you know, this cloudiness in the head. Everybody experiences and senses these things in different ways. Um, talk a little bit more about as you're helping people to get to the emotional point and understand what these emotions are. What does that process look like? What? How are you I- encouraging them to explore? Yeah. So it's like you just said, it's independent and individualized and it's personal and intimate. Um, I actually had a therapist sit in on one of my classes once. And at the end of it, she said, you didn't identify the emotions that were supposed to be experienced in the postures. And I was like, how is that my responsibility? Who? Yeah, I was actually quite offended by it and asked her, I'm like, who am I to ever go up to any person and say, this posture is going to make you feel vulnerable. And I'm like, vulnerability is an independent personal experience. And so I can guide someone into a shape and then just let them be there with it. And I might explain different sensations that would arise or different urges that would arise and be able to help describe commonalities of the experience. But it's in no provider's place or scope to define the experience for the individual. And so when I'm teaching, it's oftentimes just putting them into the physical shape and then trying to keep them there as long as possible. And oftentimes that involves hitting failure, right? Yeah. So I think you bring up a really important point. I think that in, so pop psychology, and the way I would define pop psychology is basically what you see on the internet. It's not necessarily 
psychology and it's not necessarily, uh, you know, research, but everybody has these words that they throw out there because they've heard it and they've read it. In pop psychology, we like to tell people what certain things are. We like to tell people what certain things feel like. We like to tell people that when this happens, you should feel like that. And I think that it has guided us along this path of emotionally unintelligent men and women, but I'm going to stay with men because men are being told what they should feel. Men are being told that if you don't feel this, when this happens, then that's not normal. I don't even know what normal is, if I'm being honest. What's your take on that? Well, first of all, I don't even think there is anything that is normal. <laughs> I think that normal is an individual assignment. Um, <clears throat> but in any stance or situation, I think that that's what awareness is. Awareness is being able to connect to your individual self and create such a relationship and a connection with that, whether it be physical body, mental, emotional, spiritual, how whatever spectrum you're designating your awareness to and starting to identify the truth. And it's a practice. The first time it's wildly confusing. In fact, the first time that most people give themselves permission to become aware of anything about themselves, it's so uncomfortable that it's hard to get them to show up the second time, right? Because yeah. you just want to run away from it and hide it and lock it away and pretend it never happened. I think that these emotions that take vulnerability, like humility and embarrassment or unknowing, all of these emotions that we're capable of experiencing, we tend to avoid the ones that we are unfamiliar with. And so awareness is the first step to that process is becoming familiar with the things that we avoid. How often do you see somebody start to feel an emotion and then their face just turns to fear? Oh, all day, every day. I would say one of the biggest things that I see is watching them take up space and then panicking. Because even though these are men, they open up into something like warrior B or any standing power pose. And you can see a trauma response take place because they're expanding and taking up space. And as some, you know, research is, is identifying that in power postures or taking up space, there's this increase of testosterone and decrease of cortisol. And so there is a physiological endogenous experience going on. And you can see it occur where they'll immediately try to make themselves smaller, or they might fall back into the pain story of, I can't do this. So I'm going to sit down on the mat and curl up into a ball or lie down in the fetal position or something. And then they later tell the story that it was pain induced, or for some reason they're avoiding that. And that's where, you know, I'll have a one-on-one -on -one with a patient and sit down and ask, was that true? Or was it just really hard for you to give yourself permission to expand and open and take up space? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, because I think about certain times in my life where an emotion would come up and it, uh, I didn't even know how to identify it, describe it. Uh, I just knew something was happening, right? There was some stuff in the basement that was kind of, you know, uh, banging around and then immediately go to fear because number one, I don't even know what I'm feeling. Number two, I don't even know why I'm feeling that. And so those two unknowns can create this sensation of fear. Uh, I've seen that multiple times with clients and people that I have worked with uh, in the past. How do they 
How, how do you recommend people move past the point of fear? Oh my gosh, I have been identifying this lately and writing about it. And I've come to the conclusion that to counter fear, you just have to have faith, right? Yeah, and not right. necessarily faith in something in particular or an identification of what is, you know, like when you just mentioned that an emotion comes up and it's unidentifiable, like, I don't know what this feeling is. That's okay. Not yeah. everything needs an assignment. Sometimes it's just being with what is, and then later at a different point, it reveals itself with a name, right? So a lot of times too, I'll tell the patients that your emotions are basically like a laboratory within you and you have all these different vials filled with all these different things. And so you have love and you have joy and you have fear and you have, you know, vulnerability, whatever it is, you have all the different labels of everything you're possible of feeling. And self-awareness is just the ability to like open up the cupboard and look at all the vials and see how much of what is in what. And maybe there are some that are too full that aren't really serving you. And so you pour a little bit out, or maybe there are some that are a little bit more empty that need more. And so you pull those out of the cupboard and set them down and do some experiments to increase the volume on whatever emotion or thing that you need to fill might be low. So it's just an adjustment of your own. Yeah, it's your own, your body's your laboratory. It's a beautiful visual. And I think it's really, uh, you know, observation and creativity tend to go hand in hand, right? And rather than placing judgment that I should feel that or I shouldn't feel that or this is a good emotion or a bad emotion, which I think that binary narrative tends to be there too often, uh, taking the point of observation. And I really love how you talked about faith because I'm on the same page. And when we talk about faith, we're not necessarily talking about faith in an outcome, right? It's just the faith that, hey, what is, is. And at a certain point, I am intelligent enough. I am uh, spiritually aware enough. I am emotionally intelligent enough that that answer, if there needs to be an answer, will come. If it doesn't need to be an answer, that's okay too, right? Um my son a few days ago or some time ago had some friends around and I just said, you know, guys, let me just teach you a basic concept of life that you probably are not hearing today because on social media, you can just rant, you can tell people uh, whatever you think and you think that everybody wants to hear it. It's okay not to have an opinion about things. And honestly, your opinion matters less than what actually is. And they just sat back and looked at me like, wow, that's pretty profound. But it's true that we don't always have to identify. We don't always have to clarify. We don't always have to classify the things that are going on inside of us. Sometimes it's just a matter of being aware of it, right? That's actually how I start every single session that I teach is just having everybody lie down and take a moment moment to do absolutely nothing but lie down. <laughs> and that's it. It's like, you don't have to scan your body. You don't have to set an intention. You don't have to come up with any sort of to-do list. It's just to just be, just, be. just yeah. be. And I'll oftentimes, even after giving them just that moment to just exist in nothingness for a moment to be like, what would your life be like if every time you entered a new space, you did that? Like every time you walked into a new space experience environment, you took 30 seconds to just do nothing <laughs> and arrive 
you know, and, and how it would change because arriving of body and then arriving of mind, and then letting all of these so-called intentions sort themselves out. Cause then they just come from a place of truth and honesty. You're not really assigning anything to it. It's almost like you're taking this powerful pause, right? There's so much uh, control that we can have over our nervous system by controlling the breath, right? I mean, the breath is so powerful and how it either stimulates things like cortisol and our catecholamines or adrenaline, uh, or it can tap into the uh, parasympathetic part of the nervous system and cause us to calm down. And so stepping into a space and just breathing and observing and just be right there. What an, what a, what a powerful tool. And talking about men, like how can you imagine the framework if men allowed themselves to have this persona or perception that they could enter a space and take a moment just to pause. Yeah. And that that would be powerful. And then to proceed right. after arriving. Yeah. You know, it, it brings up, um, what you said just brought a, a memory, a couple of memories. One was I had a friend call me one day and I picked up the phone and I said, Hey, how are you doing? And there was this pause. And then after the pause, he broke down sobbing and he could barely get out the message, but he was calling to tell me that one of our friends, somebody that we had grown up with in high school had, uh, taken his own life. And he, we just had this moment on the phone where he sobbed and we shared in sadness of it. And we were stunned. We were shocked. We were, um, in awe that that could actually happen to somebody that we knew and the pause leading to the emotion coming out that we then shared together uh, became a moment that I'll never forget. And it's one of those beautifully sad moments of life that I'm grateful for. And I had mentioned this to uh, another friend at one point, and I can't remember how this came up, but I had mentioned that, that experience and he said, wow, I don't have any friends that I could call and just be myself and break down crying in a moment like that. And I don't think that he was unique in that because I don't think that men have spaces that they have tribes, that they have friendships where that's totally okay to just be yourself and to be. And so I guess it kind of, I, I know I'm rambling a little bit uh, because of what you said sparked me in that direction. How important, Ashley, is tribe and um, location, you know, having people around you and having uh, a space where you can just be? How important is that for these men that you're working for? Well, I think that we're stronger together in general. Right. And so community is one of the most essential elements to life. Yeah. Um, COVID proved a lot of that. Oh, big time. So there's, right. um, yeah, there's extensive research on loneliness and health effects. So absolutely a community environment and the word yoga itself means connection, right? To bring together. And so men oftentimes have a self-identified assignment of leadership and a perspective of what that looks like. And a lot of times I think men assign themselves the perspective that leadership comes with unemotional 
Mm. And Good point. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so when like the environment with the men that I work in is all about emotions, it's all about processing trauma. And it's interesting to watch them come in with that original identity that emotion is bad. And then as they go through this 30 day process, their 30 plus day process, start to give themselves permission to be emotional and then watch them share it together and watch them even use the language of emotion together to communicate. Because it's something that on the other spectrum, women are assigned to be emotional. And so um, these two, this polarity of these gender specific perceptions of how we express ourselves. And they're not though. They're like men have just as many, if not more emotions than women (laughs) and unique emotions. And I think a lot of us have so many emotions that aren't quite identifiable throughout your life. You gain so many different experiences that you start to discover different feelings. Like you, like you mentioned earlier, how do I assign it a label that I can communicate with? Maybe you don't need to. Yeah. Some things you just can't describe with words. And if anything, back to the, the quote, we talked about silence in that story that you just shared the silence spoke more than anything. Right. It was a silence that was powerful. And, and, and I think back to many moments in life where if I pause, I can't even describe what I felt. I, I can feel it again, but I can't describe it. It's too difficult. I can't describe the emotion the feeling, the sensation of one morning when my friends and I are camping uh, on the riverbank in Moab, Utah, and I'm woken to somebody playing a pan flute, and it's echoing across the canyon. I can tell you about it, but I can't even describe the amazing feeling. And then looking up and seeing how the sun came across and was kissing the top of the cliffs and feeling the crispness of the air, knowing that we were going to go climbing that day, the anticipation. There were so many feelings and sensations that I can, talking about it right now, feel, but I don't know how to communicate in words. And I think it's important that we recognize that and that we honor that and that we pause and say, that's okay, because it's not communicated through word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Silence is one of the most powerful communicators. I was actually just thinking about sometimes when we're in a event or in a group or community experience and uh, the presenter, the leader will have people take a vow of silence to honor something that has occurred. And when you're in an experience like that and the whole entire room goes silent for a specific amount of time, it's chilling. Like everyone is to collectively together experiencing something so overwhelmingly powerful in the nothingness. And that is how we honor something profound is with nothingness. So it's very telling in and of itself, just in that experience that we can kind of all reflect on. Most people have been in some stadium or place where they said, you know, we want to take a moment of silence to honor such and such. Yeah. And it's profound. Or even um, one of my best friends the other day, we were driving in the snow. And, it was bad. And snow. I was like, I hate the snow. And she's like, I love to go for a walk after it snows. It's because that, that's it's one of my favorite things. Silent. And it's so pure. And so I think there's profoundness in that. So I there was a 
there was a quote I'm trying to find here. Um, oh, here it is. Okay, so going back to Redfield, another quote from Celestine Prophecy that I particularly appreciated. Um, I want to get your thought on this. So he wrote, we must assume that every event has significance and contains a message that pertains to questions. This especially applies to what we used to call bad things. The challenge is to find the silver lining in every event, no matter how negative. So I guess, really, I've got probably three questions, maybe more on this. Uh, first, do you feel the same way? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I when When you were reading that, what I was thinking was that in that quote alone, there's like, there's a lot of assignment in it, right? That something is bad or that something is good. I think classifying those two things offhand is a disservice to what you can receive. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that experience in general is just about being with what is and letting it reveal itself. How, How often do you believe we need to go through the what is the darkness and the pain in order to come out on the other side to sense and feel the light? Yeah, I think that almost always, like even just today in my teaching um, in my women's class, I was having them hold a posture that is extremely challenging and pushing them to a place where they where every person failed. Right. And that was my goal was to get them to fail. And they were extremely upset with me. They didn't know that was my goal, but the whole room is everyone was crumbling and falling and failing. And, and some of them were shouting things at me and they were getting so upset. And then after that, we sit in a hold and it was in the hold that I informed them. My job is to push you to your own limitation. My job is to help you find these areas of yourself that you avoid, my job is to drag you kicking and screaming into these areas of yourself that you avoid, which is oftentimes in your own failure because life is going to push you to these places. And so why not practice it in this safe, confined space? How do we get back up and try again? Or how do you adapt to something that maybe is impossible? And then the digesting of the fact that something is impossible. Failure tends to be a great teacher for us. Um, How do you look at failure and what we can learn from it? I think failure is the biggest teacher. I think that failure, if think about if you immediately succeeded at anything and everything you ever tried. Mm -hmm. How boring. It really is. (laughs) Even though that's the thing we say we want, right? Yeah, it's the experience that has all the flavor. And so I think that it's the perception of failure and how do we change the societal perception that that's a bad thing. It should be embracing it, you know, the journey or all of these different descriptions that we want to give the process. That's where all of the flesh is. It's a great way to put it. Um, I think about different times that I failed in life. And it, um, it it never feels great in the moment. There's not this joy, happiness, exuberance. Um, but there are beautifully rich emotions with it. And going back to the quote of when we assign good or bad, again, this, this strong binary to something, 
we tend to miss the the beautiful nuance of some of these darker emotions that we feel. Mm-hmm. An example that pops into my head is actually um, falling down. So, okay. so I'm somebody who just falls a lot. I'm oh, just good, clumsy. Good. I'm glad you haven't fallen yet today. I just do in my life. It's it's I'm five foot nine. I'm mostly legs. And so I'm like, my balance gets off and I just fall a lot. It's so funny. And so for me, I had to build a relationship with humility. And now I really look at it as like, I love to fall down because (laughs) I'm like every now and then you need that little dose of humility to just embrace it and be in a situation that someone else might scramble to cover up or conceal or it's like, who saw me or what happened? And you know, it's just a part of life is like, oh, I fell and let's laugh or let me pull someone down with me. Like it's, and I will tell that to the patients when I teach balance in a class, which is rare, but when I'm teaching balance and I'm trying to push them to that ledge of failure, I'll say, and if you fall, pull your neighbor down with you. So you're not alone. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to look at it. I, uh, I, I can empathize. I don't fall often, but I did fall the other day. Um, I was walking up the stairs, I was carrying a bag and all of a sudden I'm on the ground, but I'm on actually on the stairs. I, I think I, I scraped up my, uh, finger. Oh, it's gone. It, I like tore the, the skin off of my finger when I fell. So anyway, I can empathize with you just at least in that moment. Um, what are some other things that failure can teach us? I think that failure can teach us that the path we thought we had planned wasn't the one we were supposed to be on. (laughs) So if you have this perceived outcome that is desirable and you attach to it in such a way that nothing else seems like, like an option, you know, sometimes failure will remind you that you don't get to make the decision for everything. (laughs) And so you just have to take what comes back to the humility concept. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit because you work in um, an allopathic medicine setting, right? Uh, you're very much a uh, a researcher at heart. You study a lot. You read a lot. You know a lot about uh, anatomy and physiology, uh, biochemistry, nutri- nutrition science, uh, why the body moves the way that it does. Allopathic medicine is basically a framework of we've identified a problem, we've identified something that we can diagnose, and now we're going to prescribe a drug or a maybe a treatment for it. What you do in that space oftentimes is considered an alternative treatment in the allopathic uh, framework. How do you show up knowing that you might be looked at as an alternative to this allopathic process? Yeah, I love to educate people that what I'm doing is actually the original medicine, right? So, so much of medicine is coming from animals and plants, probably all of it. And so the original thing that we had was just ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so my form of medicine is purely endogenous, right? Whether it's the way that someone's positioning their body and it's causing some sort of hormone or neurotransmitter release, or it's breath control, tapping into nervous system response, and you have sympathetic and parasympathetic. And um, yoga, in essence, is just using your own nervous system to conduct and create a response that 
your body chooses for you to have, which is the most natural that there is. And so if you're using your peripheral nervous system to create an effect on your central nervous system, and then to practice an awareness of what it is and to manage what's taking place, what better form of medicine than yourself? I'm not saying that I'm against medicine. I think that it absolutely has a place. And I was born with a heart condition. I took medicine for a big chunk of my life. But I also was gifted the ability to learn these alternative options. <laughs> Even in that scenario, when I was diagnosed with supraventricular tachycardia and Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, um, which were the heart conditions that I had, Yes, I was prescribed a tenanol and I took that for a decade, but my doctor was cool enough to teach me that I could also stand on my head to reset my own heart rhythm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And holding my breath would reset my heart mm -hmm. and dunking my face in ice water would reset my heart. And that was actually oh. the one that always worked for me, um, which you see people doing ice baths or right. dunking right. their face in water. I don't think people understand why it actually works, right? No, it's just a cool <laughs> trend for people. No, but it actually does work. It's actually the trigeminal nerves in your face, and it's through evolutionary biology. So as those nerves detect a colder temperature, they slow the heart rate down to conserve energy resources in the body. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty fascinating. Your experience and mine, well, uh, different in nature. I had an experience one time where I was uh, I had been seeing this doctor, uh, for some acid reflux. I was having digestive issues. I was having constant acid reflux. And she says, well, you know, just get used to it. And I'm going to prescribe a, a medication for you. I said, but I, I, I don't want to take a pill. What, what else? She goes, well, you're over 30. Um, this is just, you're a white male. This is just what happens. And it was, and I looked at her and I, I said, no, 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 no. Okay. You know me. I know you. Uh, at, at the time I was her trainer, she was my doctor. And I said that that's not the answer. Like, I know that's not the answer. There is not something that just happens at the age of 30, where 30 and 40 and 50 year old men have to experience this. And she, and we, we debated back and forth, uh, which I loved my debates with her. Um, and I find, I just refuse to accept that my quote unquote problem came from my age, my, uh, you know, being a, a, a white male over 30. And so I started to dig deeper and I started to ask the question, what could be causing this? What could be creating this reflux issue, this, you know, response. And, uh, through a lot of, uh, study and a lot of experimentation, I figured out what was causing it. And I removed those things from my life. And ever since, and I've never had that problem again, right? Because I understood that the biochemistry of the body, as you talk about the endogenous uh, reactions, the things that happen inside of us, they can also be affected by the things we do, breath, and the things we ingest, the food, right? Um, but it's fascinating when you talk about the, so, you know, it's considered alternative right now, but it really was the original medicine because the body has the medical uh, or the medicine inside of it more than anything, right? Um, but today we're trying to sell something different. We're trying to sell medication. We're trying to sell a different form of healthcare. And so what you do is now alternative. It was an alternative a uh, hundred years ago, 200 years ago, mm -hmm. right? It was the thing. Yeah, it was, it was the medicine. medicine. 
Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that is another thing I come up against in my industry is um, providers will say, oh, it's not evidence-based. And I'm like, yeah. it's more evidence-based than anything. Nice. So yeah. Right. And, it, and the thing about what I do, it can be an additive to a treatment regimen with no side effect. Right. right. What doesn't have a side effect? It's like, oh, lay down in stillness and breathe and yep. you'll lower your cortisol levels. You'll increase your serotonin and dopamine. You'll have this entire, you know, cascade of release on things that are going to make you feel better. And you're not going to have to take another pill to deal with a thing that was the side effect of the pill that you're taking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I. How do you deal with those conversations? I'm just curious. When you run into somebody who may push back on this idea that uh, it's alternative and it should be maybe secondary. Mm -hmm. It's always just educating people that um, I often use this lesson with my substance abuse or addiction medicine patients that, you know, if we're addicted to a drug and the drug is having an effect in the body because there's a receptor mm -hmm. for the drug right. from this. Uh, exogenous source. So for the receptor to exist, the body has to make a version of the drug itself. And anything that the brain makes is more powerful than the exogenous source. It's right. that you have control of how much you can put into your body versus control of how much your brain might make of whatever um, chemical mechanism. And so oftentimes I'll even teach with the reference to heroin, right? <laughs> heroin that gives this blissful experience um, and you're injecting heroin to feel good. But there are ways for your body to release endorphins and encephalins, which are going to hit the same receptor site and cause the same effect, but same more day. powerfully. Right. And um, like exercise. But also dosed in the appropriate amount too. Yeah, yeah. Right? Your and brain. The brain knows that. The body knows how to dose the right way. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, when you teach them that, that it's like exercise is going to release this same chemical that's hitting the same receptor that's going to cause this reaction in your body systemically. Um, it's just that, unfortunately, your brain's not releasing dopamine, which helps you remember that you feel good. Right? Right. And so that's where things become addictive as you get dopamine involved. Um but yeah, when you educate people that this is what's happening and most providers, like in my circumstance, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of amazing doctors who do know this and they highly advocate for what I do. Um, it's teaching, you know, therapists or people that don't maybe have the medical knowledge and they're looking at it as stretching, you know, or go to yoga and relax. I'm like, no, I don't want to relax anybody. I want to trigger them a lot. Yeah. <laughs> We're pushing past the boundaries. Um, in the book, uh, Living with Intent, uh, the author says that uh, when we slow down to notice, the universe gives us the signs we need. Uh, we, we live in an always on, very distracted society, right? Uh, it, I think it's much easier to distract us with our phones or with something that has just popped up rather than slowing down and observing the beauty of life. Now, we just referenced drug addiction, but I think this also has some play with men in general. If I feel uncomfortable, it's easier to distract myself than it is to slow down. Talk about what do you do to get people to slow down and observe the beauty of life? Yeah. So for me, the secret sauce is stillness and <laughs> to, to really advocate and almost 
force <laughs> these men to sit in stillness. Uh, they're so reactionary. And so something as simple as, and I've already mentioned it several times, even in this conversation, a seated forward fold. And I like to use this posture because it is a position that everybody does all day, every day. Everybody's forward folding. They're picking things up off the ground or off a table. And so a forward fold is one of the most common shapes that we create every day throughout our lives. And then everyone's like, why do I have back pain? <laughs> it's like, well, your spine moves in six different directions. So maybe we need to even things out. But in forward folding, when you take someone in a seated position and you have them fold in on themselves to the degree that they feel safe or comfortable with, and then you ask them to commit to that for a length of time or a period of time, you'll notice that within like 30 seconds, they have the urge to react right? 30. It's super fast, maybe even faster than that. And so if you ask someone to hold a forward fold for five minutes, that sounds impossible. Right. And in the moment they, they behave like it's impossible. They oftentimes do give up. And so it's coaching them through the experience of why do you need to move? Do you really need to move? Or is this just your imagination building a story that you're giving control to because you've survived way worse? <laughs> Let's just sit here in this fold and navigate what's rising up. What is the story that you're building in your mind and how can you redirect your own intelligence or your own consciousness to what actually navigates you through the commitment you made, which was to just sit in this simple forward fold that was comfortable originally or tolerable originally. And now that we're holding it for an extended period of time, it's not so much your body that needs you to move, it's your mind. So what is it triggering or bringing up that's asking you to disassociate or disconnect or to give up on yourself? You often will push people to a point where there's a pretty strong reaction. In fact, that strong reaction is part of what you're looking for, right? And that also educates your program. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about your program, the naming of the program. Yes. Okay. So my program is called F Yoga, which is function of yoga. So uh, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story to get to where and how and why this came to be. So you might have to bleep some of this out when you we don't publish bleep. it. Yeah, it's, we, always, we always post the episodes as uh, the not safe for work episodes. Nice. So, yeah, nice. fine. So um, Function of Yoga or F Yoga came from actually a shirt that I had made. My mom asked me what I wanted for Christmas and I told her I wanted a shirt that said fuck yoga across the front of it. Nice. And so she made me this shirt and it was really big and what, bold. What a great mom. Oh, I have the best mom. <laughs> and it was really big and bold. And in my mind, when I described it to her, I envisioned the envisioned the lettering small print. So it okay. wasn't so in your face, but she made it so big. And so I've worn this shirt. I love the shirt. I've worn the shirt to airports. I've worn the shirt to Costco. I've worn the shirt running errands. I'm sure that went over well in Utah, in Costco. Exactly. In I, Utah, you probably had City. a lot of Stanley moms it, uh, upset at you. Exactly. It's 50-50. I either have people that are like, I love your shirt, or I have people severely offended. And it's funny too, because if my hair is covering um, part of the word yoga, it looks like it says, fuck you, because oh, nice. it's why, oh, you know, yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll miss that Good. part or they'll come over and say, do you not like yoga? And I'm like, I teach yoga. <laughs> so, so yes, fuck yoga came from, you should absolutely be pushed to a point where that's what you're saying. You should be hitting this edge within yourself where you're just like, fuck 
this. I cannot do this anymore. I'm so frustrated. I'm so bothered. And I'm like, yes, we finally have something to work with. Um, we have this opportunity for change because you're so against the edge that it feels impossible or it's perceived to be impossible. And maybe it is actually impossible. And even then we're hitting failure. Right. And so, yes, I always want to get them to this edge of fuck yoga. And, um, so it started out as that. And then in my own meditation, I kind of ventured into this place of going, maybe that was too much. Maybe I was like, maybe I should have just maybe done. Maybe there's another side. I was like, maybe I should have just done F yoga. Maybe that would have been more appropriate. And then of course the researcher science nerd in me was like, oh my God, that's exactly what yoga is. It's a function just like math. So you come in as you are and you go through this experience that is the function and you leave yourself, but changed in some way by the function. So it is a system just like math and science and, and all of these things that we instill trust in. And that was the, that was the beginning of function of yoga. I love that. Talk a little bit about the, uh, when you're talking about the, you want to push people to the point where they're looking at it and they're like, fuck yoga. You're trying to create this death of the old person and a rebirth of the new. Exactly. So, um, I mean, it takes, it takes so much grieving to get there, but you're coming in as you are. And for some reason, you're seeking some element of change, right? So in the formula, that would be considered delta, right? If we're really talking mathematical formulas. So you're coming in as you are, you go through this experience. And in the experience, if you're not hitting a point that's causing change, you're staying the same. But that's not why you entered into it. Right. The the gap between where you want to be and where you are is fuck yoga. Yeah, that's it, right? That's the delta. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And so the only way to really incur change is to go through that monumental breakthrough point where you hit your own personal designed edge, whether that be standing on your head and then falling right back down to the floor and overcoming the fear that you went upside down or sitting in a forward fold for five minutes and wanting to punch me, the teacher in the face, you know, or what, whatever internal dialogue is going on, you know, or it's the emotional breakdown. I watched these guys literally clench fists and sob their eyes out in these yoga poses. And when I'm witnessing that taking place, I'm patting myself on the back like, finally, yes, I did it. I hit this breakthrough point with this person. And I know that they get to leave absolutely changed in some way. There's always a break, right? I've talked about this multiple times on the podcast that there's always a breakdown or a breakthrough, uh, a, a break apart. I had a recent guest that talked about how she really believed that people need to have their heart broken because that's what allows the light inside. And that there's a lot of power in this concept of the break. What are some things, aside from just getting people really pissed off about being in a pose, that you do to help push them to the breaking point? I think also just getting them to feel, right? And so a lot of times there's so much avoidance, but when you're moving your body in any way whatsoever, you're going to feel regardless, whether it's lying down. It's unavoidable. Yeah, it's unavoidable. And so it's all these different experiences of creating sensation, creating something that's calling it thought, right? Um, Lately, I've been really breaking down the perception that your physical body is the OG prison. Mm. You live inside this package and you live with so much suffering 
because you're pushing against the packaging. It's this prison that you're in. And then it kind of even translates into this whole idea that it's like, you put that box in a box and that box in a box, right? You put your body in a house and you put your house in a city and you put your city in a state and then you're in a country. And it's just this constant definition of like laws to abide by in essence, but it all really transmutes all the way down into just your body is like the first prison that you're confined to. Yeah. What was it? I, I, I don't know the reference, but I know Victor Frankl talked a lot about this of the prison of the mind and that the one last piece that could never be taken from him was his freedom to choose and ultimately his freedom to choose his happiness or what he focused on. Uh, the prison of the mind, I think, is something that many researchers and philosophers have written about and studied, uh, that it, it it is probably the most important prison that we have to break through before we can get to anything else. Um, what are some of the more common blockers that you find men have as you, they're going through this process of breaking through the prison of the mind? Well, I think the first one is uh, the identification or perception that anything that has to do with their body is involving some element of power or strength. And so, like, for example, I'll often insert some sort of like plank or push up series in a level five in the middle of the class. And so they're already physically fatigued to some degree. And then they're suddenly unexpectedly doing planks and push-ups. And it's interesting to watch a room of such physically powerful people not able to complete. Yes. <laughs> and when I'm witnessing that, I'm I'm observing it from a place of like, this is all mind block because they are 100% physically capable of doing a push-up from hands and toes or hands and knees, a modified version. But oftentimes they'll just collapse all the way down to their belly. And so- sometimes outside of the yoga experience, just one-on-one -on -one in conversation or lecture will identify this. And I'll usually bring it up as balance. I'm like, you've entered a place where you were actually requiring balance more than strength because it was, what are you over engaging that's causing such a cognitive distress that you believed you were physically incapable of doing something that you actually do often and more so than I was asking you to. Yeah. And I know you and I could probably geek out on this for a long time just because of how much we love the science behind it. But it's fascinating that people can convince themselves that they are incapable of doing certain things. And because the, bra the, the brain is the head of the, the central nervous system, which communicates out to the peripheral nervous system, which tells the muscles to fire, which tells the uh, joints to move. If you convince yourself you can't do something, you will literally shut down that process and you will not be able to move. Whereas if you said, well, what if I could? What if I just tried? What would that look like? It's such a powerful shift. And that what if question I've found to be, if somebody can hold on to that for just a moment and say, but what if I could do this? And then they actually went and tried. Unbelievable what happens. And that's honestly like the most essential ingredient to the function of yoga, right? Is that you're changing perception. It's it's the laboratory of testing what works and what doesn't work. And you're coming in with a perception of what if I'm actually capable of this? Yeah. I Did you ever read the book, How Yoga Works? I have no idea. Probably you, you, not. Amazing. <laughs> um, 
so I had a I had an instructor that uh, worked for me when we lived in Cincinnati that he gave me the book and it was a it was a really fascinating book I actually think you'd love it if you haven't read it um, the it's a story and there's a bit of an allegory in it but it, ba- it basically just breaks down this idea that the the poses the stretching the asana the however you want to define it right that's like taking a pipe and on the inside of the pipe you've got all of this gunk that's built up and it's like banging on the pipe to loosen the stuff but the way that it really works is through the mind it's through the focus it's through the intention it's through the belief it's through the mindset shift and that's what takes the pipe cleaner and shoves the pipe cleaner into the pipe and cleans all the pipes out so that the vessel that is our body that's housing this powerful spirit inside of us can then be clean. And so it's not just about, hey, we're moving, but it's about, hey, we're moving. Oh, okay, we found this weird blockage on the inside. Yeah, you could continue to bang on the pipe, but what what if you just went internal? What if you just started to think about, feel, sense, and identify an emotion that's happening that was blocking you? What if you went deeper there? Yeah, there's. I think there's a lot of analogies to use to identify this system. Um, the one that I choose to call on when I'm teaching is I identify their body as a suitcase. Okay. And so I'm like, your body is this suitcase and just like a real tangible material suitcase. You can only shove so much in it. Right. And so you're carrying this suitcase around that you live in and inside of it, you shove everything you shove memories and information and learning and trauma and injury and experience. Everything's in there. And so when you're practicing physical yoga, you know, you're unzipping the suitcase, opening it up and you're diving in. And I'll I'll say sometimes like sometimes you pull something out and you shove it right back in. And sometimes you pull something out and you fold it nicely and you put it back in. And sometimes you pull something out and you actually let it out and you create space for something new. And so there's not really an expectation of what's going to happen, but with every physical practice, you're at least opening up the suitcase and looking at what you have inside. That's a great analogy. I've actually never heard that before. Um, Talk a little bit more. I want to circle back to what you said earlier relative to the, the five different levels that people show up. So essentially you're asking them, what level of currency can you show up to today? And as you walk them through the function of yoga. What is, uh, how, how, how could someone apply this to their life? If they're, let's say that they haven't been in a class with you yet. They haven't, uh, you know, been able to download your app, which is coming, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how could someone apply that concept today? The levels one through five. Yeah. I think it's um, analysis of self in general, right? Like maybe you even show up on a date and you're like, where am I? Where is my energetic currency? Or you're walking into a presentation. Where is my energetic currency? Or, you know, maybe you're in a conflict with your spouse. Like, where is my energetic currency? Where can I show up on a spectrum in this particular situation that's demanding my presence and attention? And so it's not even necessarily just in the function of yoga, which by the way, the yoga practice is 24 hours a day, every day of your life. It's not just on your mat. And so it is an assessment of where is my energetic currency lying. And then the next step is to, after building the awareness of it, to offer the communication of this is where I'm at, which is what we're doing in the system with me when we're one-on-one in person and they're telling me their number, right? And I might challenge and ask, like when they come in the room and they're like, Ashley, we really need a one or a two today. And I'm like, why? 
sell me, tell me why. And if they're like, gosh, we just really had a really intense DBT session, or, you know, we had psychodrama or we had some therapeutic group that sucked a lot of currency out. And I'm like, oh, you know what? You guys sold me. You're right. You are at a level one or a two, but if they come in with a ton of energy and they're all standing ready to go and they're like, we want a one, I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> You're definitely at a five. And so there is a system of communication, you know, so in any element of your life to pause and say, where am I? But then also be open to the environment or the partner in whatever engagement you're in, maybe um, having a question of if you're being honest. Yeah, honesty and just pure transparency with where you're at that day, I think is key. I'm always fascinated when I meet people who are both very good at what they do, but also have a deep passion for it. You know, I think that in life, we all, we all create and we paint, we uh, establish our art and we choose the form that we use, right? We choose the, uh, the medium that we paint our life with. Um, you've chosen the medium of yoga. You know, you're well-educated. Uh, you have studied psychology. You understand significant uh, level of biology and chemistry and everything else. Why, why do you continue to choose the medium of yoga as the way to practice your craft? Yeah, I love this question. So I actually didn't choose it. <laughs> I had a really incredible friend ask me this a similar question, you know, and, and they were trying to contemplate what to do with their life based off of passion and, and purpose. And people always come up to me and they're like, how did you choose yoga? And the honest answer is just that I didn't, it chose me. I had no intention of being a yoga teacher, even when I went into the education system of learning yoga, right? Becoming certified to teach yoga. Never, ever did I have the intention of teaching yoga. And uh, then when I started teaching, I didn't expect it to continue. I did it just for fun. And I planned on being a doctor, which is why I studied the biological sciences. And then I had a really deep passion for psychology, which is why I studied psychology and the biological sciences, thinking I would go into psychiatry and some sort of addiction medicine. Yeah. And um, while I was studying those fields, I was studying yoga and teaching yoga for fun. And there was so much overlap going back to um, an adverse option, right, of yoga being like a additive therapy and me arguing that it is the original therapy or the original medicine. There was so much overlap in the history and lineage of yoga, which predates all of them. <laughs> and then modern medicine and research and science, and then modern psychology and therapeutics. Right. And with that trifecta of overlap, nothing felt more honest than this path or this choice. And so I had this theory or this in all honesty, it was like a calling from something higher than me that I was supposed to offer this in some way and offer it in a place of suffering and in some way the most suffering, which to me is mental health. Um, and so when I started- Especially in today's day and age. Yeah. So when I started designing it in an inpatient psychiatric setting, working with every population you could imagine from, you know, active psychosis and schizophrenia, homeless population, TBI, active detox, substance abuse, drug rehab, active duty, military, general population, kids, adolescents, geriatrics, every population that's inpatient suffering with 
you know, behavioral health and then seeing the outcomes and the results, I couldn't leave it mm. just. And anytime I tried to leave it for something that maybe I perceived was a better choice, it kept pulling me back. It's, I, uh, it, it's fascinating to me over the years, I've had an opportunity to interview, to meet with, to talk to, to get to know so many different people that have achieved so many different levels of success, uh, have so much passion about what they do. And what some of what you said is the golden thread that goes through every tapestry that everyone talks about, that it feels like a calling. And sometimes you even look at it and you say, I'm not even sure if this is what I want to do. And then you get pulled back in and then you find another piece to it. In 2020, uh, you, you and I had a conversation about this uh, whole idea of you wanted an app and you wanted to create something that was bigger. You were, you were incubating some ideas that you wanted to expand. Your app is in beta version, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit more about the app and how people can learn more about it. Because I know it's not as exciting for me as it is for you because you've been through this whole process. But I, I got to be honest, I'm pretty excited because I still remember the spark in your eye that you had talking about it then. That that spark is brighter and maybe a little bit deeper at this point because you've been through almost four years of putting all this together. Tell us more about the app. Yeah. So also I didn't even want to create the app. <laughs> like, I'm actually a very lazy person. I want to just enjoy life, but it's a calling, you know, it's just a constant asking of others. And so the reason I decided to build the app was the patient population that I work with is all over the world. And so they don't have access to this. And then what I created is also only inpatient. And so it was the calling to offer it on a greater scale and a, a greater spectrum, which is deep down what I actually want to do with my life is to just be able to positively impact and affect as many people or lives as I possibly can. And um, the development of the app was to take the curriculum and offer it as a continuing care perspective for the patients, but also just anyone in the public who might be needing something. And it's I view it as if this can work in such a critical setting, then it can absolutely work in a less critical or more average setting, which is just any life whatsoever. Um, so the app is F Yoga and it's available, but it is in beta. So it's not completely developed, but it's accessible. So it can be downloaded as of now off of any app store. And you can see the framework. It has the levels one through five. There's a category for training and research and just information. Uh, because I'm such a big proponent of that, of giving people access to resources so that they can define and choose what they want to believe. So it's all experiential based versus belief based. Um, the reason that it is taking a while to build out is that the sessions are anywhere from 45 to 60 minutes long. And I'm a perfectionist. And so I want everything to be perfect with it, with the music, the lighting, the timing, the content all of it. And so it's curating hundreds of hours of those sessions to be available for the continuing care perspective for past patients and anyone that wants to have this in their life. The program is track. That's the patient curriculum. The F yoga is the website and the app where people can find out more information. 
Ashley, if people want to get more information from you, they want to learn more about what you do or what is the next step? How do I get started? What do I do to improve my overall life? What's the best way for them to contact you? I would say through the website. So there's functionofyoga.com. And when you go to the site, there's information on there. There's also the option to click to experience a free class. And when you click that link, it will open up for you to put in your name and your email. And then you have access to a full free session that you can take unlimited amount of times anywhere that you want from your phone or a desktop or any device. And then um, if there's a request for more information, I would say you can email function of yoga or um the instagram is function of yoga as well right any parting uh, bits of advice for anyone out there that's listening to this that may have resonated with the message um it seems like that the hardest part for most people is just getting started uh if there's someone out there that it has resonated with what you've said has felt something as we've talked what advice would you give them my advice would be to go and just turn on the free class that's offered through functionofyoga.com. I think even if there was a a reservation of doing the physical sequencing, just through mirror neurons and the way that the brain works, turn it on and just listen to it. Practice the breathing, join in on anything that you do feel comfortable with trying, but overall just getting a taste of what the opportunity could be in connecting to your body. I love that. Sometimes it's really just about showing up. And when we show up, we're surprised with what happens. Yeah. Well, Ashley Iverson, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming in studio and chatting again. Always great to have you on and really appreciate the insight, the wisdom, and the amazing work that you're doing out there. Thank you. Thank you so much for supporting my passion, my dream, and my overall calling. You bet. Thanks for joining me today for this episode of The Evolved Man. If you're learning from and gaining value from this podcast, please subscribe to the Evolved Man newsletter where I can support you even more in your personal evolution. I want to help you reverse engineer your success. The Evolved Man newsletter is like getting a free coaching session to keep you moving forward on your path of personal success. Go to the evolvedmanpodcast.com to sign up today. If you found value in this episode, you can give us up to a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify and share it with your network. That's the best way to support the podcast so we can continue to get great guests and provide you with the best wisdom for your daily life. Until next time, keep evolving.